As we are continuing David series, today we are on a critical juncture. Um, if you remember several uh, past few weeks, we talked about Absalom, David's son's rebellion. That rebellion was a uh, meticulously planned. Uh, he had this vengeance in mind. His ambition grew out of his distorted view of what's righteous and what's not. And then he thought that he could be the new leader. And that uh, vengeful ambition was in that. And most people in Israel, the northern part, went with him and David had to flag. So let's kind of catch up about a couple of things, about two, three things before we get into today's uh, text. The three things are important as we think about. Ahithophel, Hushai, and God's providence. Ahithophel was the smartest the most strategic, most well-known, well-respected strategist in David's kingdom who was deserted and betrayed David and went with this coup d'etat with Absalom. And then even the scripture talks about his, the recollects uh, public opinion on him is to hear Ahithophel's counsel is as if one would hear the word of God. And then his counsel was straightforward to when Absalom said, what should we do? David and his army, I mean his close friends and loyal people fled hurriedly from Jerusalem. Now, uh, uh, Absalom and his people, his army, is in Jerusalem, in his castle. And Ahithophel said, we should not waste any time. Give me the army, and I'll go after him tonight. And before even he thinks about anything, uh, we will be able to overwhelm them, overtake David, and I will kill David only and bring rest of them as if the bride is coming back to the groom. That was excellent. Militarily, politically, excellent strategy. But Absalom said, Bring Hushai. I want to hear his advice. And then telling Hushai about what Ahithophel said, what do you think? If you think differently, tell me now. Tell us now. And Hushai was a loyal a friend to David. He wanted to go with David, but David sent him back. And uh, and asking him to be a double agent. 
can you destroy Ahithophel's advice so that Absalom would not have a good strategy in this? Behushai, knowing all this, he gives his best shot. And you could see God's wisdom in him as well. There's no way he could top Ahithophel's advice, but he, what he did was he was speaking to the vanity of Absalom. From Dan to Beersheba, you should collect all the soldiers. In other words, what he's saying is when you win this war, you need to just more than win, you need to overtake with power and grandeur, and all these people will see that you are overwhelming superior power and glory and honor. And he fell for it, basically. Instead of doing it right away. So think about what, how long it will take from Dan to Beersheba. Remember I said it will be the northern, the furthest north and furthest south. So from, from uh, U.S. map, it will be like from New York to L.A. You will gather all the soldiers. In Second Samuel, the, the human writer, through the, the Holy Spirit, poignantly points out that it was God's providence. God caused Absalom and his leader's mind, Dahl, to choose Hushai's advice over Ahithophel. So today's story begins with David having ample time. And there's a four parts of story. Let's begin with the civil war. Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 1 through 8. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third un under the commander of Joab, one-third under the commander of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's father, and one-third under the command of Etai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Etai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard, and when the king gave order, orders to the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. 
and the men, and the men of Israel were defeated by their by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day. Twenty thousand men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. You see the picture. Not, not only David had an ample time, his skillful side warrior mind came back. This is a Philistine fighting young, mighty warrior, David. Decisively, he, del- he would delegate the responsibility to three commanders. And then obviously, he wanted to lead as he, he did in the past. But this time, his men were saying, you know, they are really looking for you. You're the only one they they're care about taking out. So it's not good for you to go out. It's better for you to support us. And maybe the underneath that is, now uh, you've been so changed in your heart. And I'm not sure whether you could be vicious against your son, Absalom. Maybe that's a hidden thing. But, but you, you could see there's a God's providence. The Israel's army are larger and many. But David's army was defeating them. What, what in the world is that? For, the forest devoured more people that day than sword? I don't know exactly. There are a lot of commentaries guessing few things, um, including even some monsters and beasts coming out, eating them up, God's work. But I think the most probably um, rational, correct uh, way of thinking in this context is because of their fear, because of this in the midst of forest, they were, they were just going crazy against each other, especially if even in the darkness. When you are really in the deep in forest, so that's probably what was going on. But more than anything, what's clear is the the battle, the war, was overwhelmingly on David's success. Which was what David wanted, right? But David's interest in Absalom. That's the next story. Absalom finally gets killed in that the the glory of his heir turns into a snare. Um, Verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak and his head caught fast in the oak and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it 
and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who, who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have give, be glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. The man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. And Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. Then he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And the ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, let me, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because king's son is dead. Then jo- Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said to Jacob, I mean jo- Joab, Come, what may let me also run after the Cushite? And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come, what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran, outran the Cushai. This the whole story sounds like a movie, isn't it? And you could see, remember 
Absalom was known for his charisma. Part of the reasons why he had a charisma was his good looks and his long, thick, beautiful hair. Known for that. Every, every year when he had a haircut, he had a five pound of hair. So think about the thick, long hair. I'm, once again, I'm not going to get into that. Because I'm very envy, envious. <laughs> he's riding a, on a mule and he, his hair got caught and he's dangling, helpless and vulnerable. And then this soldier of David would not do a thing because intentionally David made that command public. Deal gently. My son, this young man, Absalom. So um, this story is real. Not sugar-coated anyway. So if you are looking for moral lesson, this messes you up. Because it, when, when you think about what David said, it's kind of odd. You know, these warriors are going out, putting their life on, on the line. If they don't kill Absalom, they will be killed. If they don't destroy their army of coup, the, the, the kingdom of David will not be sustained. But and yet he, obviously David's heart is now turned, softened. He should have earlier when David, I mean, Absalom was going through a lot of this turmoil. But he's now tender hearted. He's not indifferent anymore. But his heart, as a fatherly heart, goes after anything, even before his kingship and kingly responsibility. But Jacob, on the other hand, is a man's man. He doesn't waste any time. In, in a, to a point, bottom line, he, he seemed to be doing the right thing. But a little bit of just uneasiness about how he does it, isn't it? He kills viciously. He has a three javelin, and his young men, armor bearer, ten armor bearer surrounding him, whatever is left in him after three javelin went into his body, dangling on there. He actually violated this young man, going against the command, the of direct command of his chief commanding officer, his king. Obviously, um, we could refer to it as the need is there. Somebody has to suck it up and do the job. So in this story, we cannot have, like a cartoon characters, this is a good guy and this is a bad guy. No, this is all mixed up, so messy. So is our lives that way. 
And the two messengers are very contrasting. And it, it's kind of amusing to look at some different opinions from the commentators as well. The one commentator calls Ahimaaz as this overly jealous people without a message. So the commentator's mind is said is this. We should not be like Ahimaaz. And overly jealous you go to the people, but you need to have a clear gospel. You need to give it to them. Uh, it doesn't sit right to me, with me on that. Sounds right, but it doesn't sit right. What, what is it? I think what it is is this. Cushite was not a Jew, was not a Hebrew. And Joab sending, choosing Cushite, non-Israelites, to, to send a really bad message, the news, to his king, or his uncle as well. It was intentional. You shall not go this time. Some other time you will carry the news, Ahimaaz. But your close friend, he is son of Zadok, the, the high priest, in a very close, neat relationship with David. You are too personally involved. Do you think when Ahimaaz said, I heard all these things, but I didn't know what happened. But we know we won the war. I don't have a clear answer yet about your son, your son Absalom. No, actually, I'm going ahead because that's the story coming up. Let's um, think about this. When the maybe I'll save this one to the next part of the story come up about two messengers. Okay. Now David hears the news and grieves, and that's the third part. Uh, Second Samuel 18, verse 24 to 33. Now David was sitting, in be sitting between the two gates, and the, the watchmen went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his, his eyes and looked, he saw a young, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told king, the king said, if he's alone, there is a news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the, to the gate and said, see another man running alone. The king said, he also brings the news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is good man he co and comes with good news. And then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed and before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the man who raised 
your, their hand against you, my lord, the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent his, the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still, and behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. Then the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O my Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. David's heart, through all this time, as I mentioned, turned and softened from indifference to compassionate by by these, all this suffering that occurred, which is actually God's work, a loving discipline on him. But back to the messengers again. I think the Kushite was very wise as well. Is it well with the young man Absalom? Instead of giving him direct answer, he prays, and may the, may the Lord make all who arises against you be like that young man. Very indirect, tactful thing. Ahimaaz knew what happened to That's why Joab blew the horn. But Ahimaaz gave the king the good news. All is well. We won the war. We won the battle. But when king asked him, he said, I don't know the exact answer. I think it, the important thing is that when you look at this story, I think there's an undercurrent of what's going on of even Ahimaaz being even thoughtful. He's passionate to bring the good news, but he will take the time to break the old news. He's going to learn the bad news anyway, soon. So we should not jump into one conclusion or the other. As much as Joab was a complex person, in this case, Ahimaaz, in some sense, very complex individual who has good intentions for his close friend, David, his king. Now, this is the part that uh, is not in chapter 18, but verse, verse 8 
verses 8 in chapter 19 is very related to this and David's response to the news. So let's go ahead and read again. Simply, it's about Joab's rebuke. Verse 1. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as as people still in who are ashamed and when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and saved the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out, speak and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king now Israel had fled every man to his own home. This is as real as it can, it can get. Messy as it can get. And David gained the, his compassionate heart, his tender heart. The problem is he went to another extreme. He was overwhelmed, engulfed by his grief and his fatherly concern. He forgot about his responsibility as a king and his joy for what God has done for the nation and God's sovereign plan for his kingdom continued and the Messiah will come from from. His house. And Joab did the right thing in rebuking, didn't he? We Americans don't know about any kind of this monarch, uh, monarchy, maybe the British 
the commentators all mention on Joab couldn't have, shouldn't have talked to his king that way. Well, actually, let's say even we take that away from it, and would we have our friends rebuke us that way? I think Joab did the right thing. The message was good. Was he gentle enough? Was he tactful enough? Was he um, had concern for his uncle as well as concern for his king? In terms of how, it doesn't seem like it. As vicious as he could get in killing Absalom, doing the right thing in such a way that he did not do it do it right way, and his message seemed to be the right message, but not in right manner. So what do we all this? If we look for moralistic lesson. Remember, one of the most important things in understanding and studying Scripture in this narrative, especially Old Testament narrative, is asking that question, what is God like? Because He is the main character, true main character behind the scene. The question is, what is God doing? What is God doing in this behind the scene? There are three lessons at least. Number one, concerning Absalom, I think the lesson that I could draw is this. God gives us today, not tomorrow, to repent and turn away from the deceitfulness of sin. All of the charisma of Absalom. And the writer of Second Samuel writes it this way, the hearts of men of Israel went with him. If you do the poll, nationwide poll, the Absalom will have 80% and David will be under 20% popularity. That happened. But as it happened, so many people, so many Effective people went with Absalom as well. It seemed like it. This is a no-brainer. Absalom has an upper hand. But Galatians six, seven, and eight teaches us this lesson: Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one saws, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Another angle of looking at it is uh, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest be there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fail away, fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is, as long as it is called today, 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So when you think about Absalom's tragic end, it should be warning to us. Especially when we think that I have tomorrow. I have a few more days and a few more years, a few more decades to get things right with God. To turn away from the deceitful things. I know this temporary things are really not a lasting thing. I need to turn away from these the wicked things in my life. I know it's eventually harmful. Bad relationships, emotional hang-ups, bitterness, your way of stubbornness, whatever that might be. Today is the day of salvation. Today is also the day that we should, in which we should encourage and exhort one another, lest we fall away. The message and the encouragement and sharp rebuke is about vigilance, isn't it? Vigilance against the deceitfulness of sin. The sin is sweet and deceitful, overwhelmingly popular at that moment. I'm praying for some of you specifically in my heart, daily, for your renewal, for your opening out your eyes to greater things, to truer things in eternal perspective, that what you see right now, it is not all. Brothers and sisters, soften your heart. Break your stubborn will and surrender it to the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit to make your heart tender, responsive to the word, to the brothers and sisters, their encouragement, their accountability. Lesson number two, concerning David, God breaks and molds us by all things in our lives. Not only by good things, I meant to say good and happy things, but also by evil and bad things. Listen to what has been already prophesied by Nathan the prophet when David's sins were against uh, um, Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba, adultery and murder. And then as Nathan confronted him, David did respond with a humble heart and he repented. And he said, your sins are forgiven. You will not die. But as soon as he finished saying that, verse 10 in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, 
through the mouth of Nathan, the prophet, God says this. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did you, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. We are also already heard about Absalom because of Ahithophel's not only smart and wicked, vengeful advice to, to set up a tent on top of the palace so that all Israel can see and then ten concubines of David who were left there. And he went in, just basically raping one after the other. That happened already. But the sword will never depart from your house. And we were wondering, God's forgiven. What's, what is all this? No, God has forgiven him. He will not die. Not only, spiritual, not only physically, but also spiritually. He will continually be carried by God's mercy. But God's loving discipline will be on it, on him. And some of our cases is also like that. But lest you think that all bad things happen in our lives is because of our sin, that God is disciplining us, never come to that conclusion when you are especially looking at others' pain going through it. And it's not even good to bring false guilt on you either. Because when you think about James chapter 1, verse 12, 2 to 4, now we're talking about uncontrollable, unpredicted, not because of your fault, but because just the world is in shamble. This happens. Consider it all joy. My brothers, when you meet, the, meet trials of certain kinds, only one kind. No, various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So brothers and sisters, in your life, when you feel overwhelmed, when the storm is just smacking you big time, Think of this. He's in control. We may not know the answer. Don't ever try to give the petty answers to the people that we, we don't even have a perception of it. We may not know the full answer until we see Jesus face to face after we die or lifted into heaven. But the important thing is, God is at work. This doesn't take a theologian to figure this out. When you think about your life, 
When was the most transforming time that you felt that God is closest? God was so real that you felt the nearness of God that you never felt that before, experienced before, and that you grow, your faith grew deeper and more genuinely. I, I bet your answer is the same as mine. It's not my mountaintop experience when everything's going so well. But it's when I am pit, going through darkness, without any single sign of light at the tunnel, that God, after breaking me down, that I am surrendering, and He comes near so sweet, deeply. And I could almost sense his presence and joy. There were the times that, as a young man, my days, I do not want this at all. I still don't want to go back to that. So, Let's pray for the eyes of faith. Let me give you a quick example. Just a few years ago, when Soren was in still high school, he likes to ride a bike. And it's one of those things that um, you don't ever want to hear. Somebody knocking on the door. It was a motorcycle policeman. Do you have a son named Soren? 16-year-old kids. Uh, yes. I want you to calm down. He got, an, he got an accident, hit by a car by riding a motorcycle that he is taken by ambulance to Western Medical Center. He's in ER right now. You may go see him. He's okay, meaning that he's not dead. So Kate and I were trembling as we were going there. As they we were walking into the trauma center, Soren sees us. And because of head trauma, he was puking all over. Mom, Dad. <laughs> and they made us sit and wait until they clean up. and everything. It took so long time. Finally, we were able to see him. And I still remember that the few days we, we thought that he's going to go home because he's going to go home, the doctor saying, and nurse is facing, saying, unless he gets better in his headache, that he's able to walk to his bathroom, he's not going anywhere. We actually give him narcotics that you signed, that this is a very strong medicine, addictive medicine for, for his pain. And I saw him holding his hand like this. Because he's pain. He's not praying for world peace. He's not praying for 
our church is evangelizing with power. He's praying for his pain. Lord, help me. I didn't see every answer, but I saw that God is at work. I could relax. My shalom is belong to my, my, my Abba Father. Without minimizing any of your pain, for those of you who are going through so much in your life, my pastor, pastoral heart, whenever I pray for you, my heart aches. Especially when it comes to your children. But I'm praying that Spirit will give you increased faith. That you will be able to find His peace in the midst of storm. In the midst of uncertainty. Third and last lesson concerning Joab. God uses the messiness of our lives to get us back to his sovereign purpose and plan. By messiness, I mean things and people, messy people. Proverbs 17 verse 10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Am I a man and woman of understanding or or fool? Maybe I should just go on and elaborating just a little bit on that. It doesn't take a person that you whom you respect so much and that he's or she is so well known and with, with godly wisdom. It doesn't fit. It's a messy person. And that God actually uses that person in your life. So the problem is not the person who brings a rebuke. The person is the person who receives. We could even learn from an evil person as a message of God. Remember Shimei who used to curse who were cursing at David, he received it at God's discipline. Let's go the other way around. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Joab did the right thing. Yes, if we are the person who's providing sharp rebuke in the name of cause of kingdom, and for that person eventually, speaking in truth, speaking the truth in love, not in harshness is important. So sometimes, with my personality, and some of you are like that, impatient people, we rather give it to you straight, 
No, wait. Pray for that person. Until your Holy Spirit says, now is the time. Go. Tell that person. So one of the things I'm learning in pastoring also too, it's not the people are clueless about what to do and what needs to be done. But it's the spiritual battle that goes in, in the heart. The, my way of loving some people these days is waiting and praying for that person without being so quick. I know my time's off, so I'm going to wrap up with this. We are living in a complex world. It's a messy world. Don't try to look for good people and bad people and just divide into two and isolate your life that way. You are living in a messy church. I wish I could say Crossway is perfect. No, it is not because I'm in it. You are in it. If you find a perfect church, don't join it because you're going to make imperfect church the moment you join it. What is God doing in our lives? Through this story, we could see the sovereignty of God. I have so much more to say because of our zoning, zoning issue. Unless we went through zoning, is will we be this desperate or hanging on to God? Unless our our hearts are ready, when we receive God's blessing, will we receive it as God's specific favor for this humble church? I'll share more on next Sunday when we celebrate tenth anniversary. Would you pray with me as we go? Father God, I thank you so much for these lessons. Uh, we want just quick answers. And our attention span is getting so limited and short because of internet as well. And this story is so messy, Lord. I'm not sure whether... We want to follow Joab or follow David or follow, follow the Cushite or Ahimaaz. Teach, teach us to be discerning, to look for your wisdom that we pay attention to God who is in the center of these stories and of our lives as well. And may we grow increasingly more wise through the eyes of faith, not through the eyes of pragmatic self-help knowledge. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.